Good morning. Welcome once again to By Grace. We are thrilled that you're here this morning to worship with us. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing in our study going verse by verse through this letter from the Apostle Paul. And I encourage us to remember every week that this is God's word, that it's been written down and preserved, protected, and passed on to us. And we should hear it, and we should receive it as the very word of God. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come here this morning to sing praise to you, to offer our prayers to you, and Lord, we come to hear from you. God, may your word to us have the power of a battle axe. May your word to us this morning have the precision of a scalpel in a surgeon's hand. Lord, we ask that you would cut pride in all its various forms from us. Lord, we also pray that you would take away the haunting fears of the law, the fears that bring anxiety and oppression, sometimes seeming without measure, limitless as it is. Father, we pray this morning that you would key our minds, that we would hear the gospel of grace and freedom, and no other message. Lord, we ask that you would remind us of your goodness, renew us in your power, and strengthen us in the wise ways that you are at work in us. Lord, give us eyes that we might see and ears that we might hear and hearts eager to receive all that you have for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Redeemer, and friend. And all God's people agree. The book of Galatians is, of course, a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to a group of churches found in the region of Galatia, kind of southern Turkey, modern day. And it was written because of the need to reject, to explain and reject, to explain and enlighten and reject false doctrine coming from false brothers who have purposefully and willfully invaded the church to put out the flame of the gospel. 
Paul writes a polemic letter, there's no doubt. He writes to expose and remove wrong teaching. It's not a pesky little wrong teaching. It's a giant erasure of the entire gospel. Listen to the last verse in our section this morning. Paul says that the stakes are this high. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, for no effect. It accomplished nothing. And we who are gathered here this morning do so understanding that he died for a significant purpose. No, significance not strong enough, is it? What about an eternal purpose? Does that raise the stakes? We are not talking here about mere intellectual consistency or debate material. We are talking about the very living hope of the gospel. Do not let yourself grow numb or weary in this exploration of truth. This is the very hope of heaven that every believer has and the ground upon which it is laid. The gospel of grace and freedom in Christ are under attack. You might say that's a little melodramatic, but if you have been following Christ for even a a, a slow or, or tiny amount of time, you know how fleeting dependence on grace really is. How easy it is for us to fall off the balance beam of grace into pride and self exaltation on the one hand. I am better or have done, therefore God has favor. Or we fall off, probably more often, into the balance beam of despair, thinking I have not lived up to all that I should. I have not done all that I could. And you're left with the despairing question, How could God have favor upon me at all? Either we think we earn it or we think we never have it. And both are wrong. Both are unbelievably wrong. The gospel of grace is one in which it is not about what you do for God. It is about what God has done for us. And we let that slip through the grip of our minds. We let it be taken from the comfort of our hearts. And we move towards human performance, human merit as the ground for God's pleasure with us. And that is the question that was being argued In the first century, it is still the question that is argued in the ivory towers and churches around us. 
how does a righteous God accept an unrighteous person like me, like you? Paul is contending for the grace of God. He is contending for the grace of God against human merit in any form. And we have exotic forms, do we not? In the same way that Paul might tell the church of Rome that, that we invent ways of doing evil, so too do we invent ways of sneaking our efforts, our sincerity, our desires into this formula of why God loves us, why God favors us, why we are acceptable and even pleasing in his sight. Paul is contending for the gospel of grace. God's willingness to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And he's doing it over and against the insidious gravity of human merit. God's grace on the one or human merit on the other. This is where we begin this morning, and the stakes could not be higher. Paul writes, For through the law, I died to the law. Paul is writing against false brothers who desire to add the death of Christ to human performance. In their genuine obedience to the law. They're arguing for a return to the law. In fact, not only are they arguing for a return to the law, they're essentially saying that the only distinction between Jew and Gentile can be found in the demonstration of submission to the law, seen most typically, pun intended, in the doctrine of circumcision. You get it? The only way a Gentile could be fit for righteous sake into the throne room of heaven is if they convert to historic Judaism, which could not be further from the truth. On what basis does a righteous God accept unrighteous people like us? They would say by returning to obedience to the law. That would be their solution. So when Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law, the ears of every Jew considering this would jump out of their skull. What would be the crowd? How could you die to the law? The law is good and enduring. Yes. Every Christian says yes. The law is good and the law is enduring. But the law is not the pathway we walk for salvation. What Paul's saying here is that it is through the law that he has died to the law. 
We're going to spend the significant body of our time this morning in this thought. And it's important for us to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. So when Paul speaks of the law in this part of the verse, he's talking about the whole law of God. He's talking about the entire testimony of God's law in the Old Testament. He is not, contrary to what is becoming more popular to view, just talking about the ceremonial law. Paul is not saying ceremonial laws are abrogated here, though that's true, and Paul says it, it's just not what he's saying here. You can find it in Romans. What he's saying here is that it is the entire testimony of the law, the whole law of God, And if we fail to see Paul saying the whole law of God here as greater than the ceremonial law, we will miss the entire point of this epistle. In fact, our understanding of this phrase, the law, in reference to the law of God in the Old Testament, if we fail to grasp the size, scope, and power of this statement, then we will deny the entirety of this letter. All things are at stake in our understanding of this phrase. Remember, Paul is dealing with the question of human merit versus divine grace. In other words, is human goodness, is human performance, Is human effort sufficient to make a man right with God? And we cry, no, of course not. A theologian in the last century imagines Paul saying something like this, quote, when I become a Christian, says Paul in effect, I ceased to seek my salvation from my own obedience to the law of God. And in that sense, at least, I died to the law. My connection with the law as a means of obtaining merit with God was forever done away. Isn't that great? That is the point that Paul is pressing here. He is trying to help us understand that our break with the law of God is as irrevocable as death. Which is a little funny, given the Christian's view of resurrection. But we are not resurrected back to the law. It is through the law we died to the law and received new life. We will get there in just a moment. But what Paul is talking about here is the great doctrine of our union with Christ. And he is speaking here about how closely identified the Christian should view themselves with Christ. Sometimes we draw too little 
from church history's understanding of our union with Christ. So let's back up a tiny bit. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, there's this short sentence that is echoed several times in the chapter. And in fact, it's a summary understanding of a much larger concept that the prophet has been talking about for many chapters. You can see it at the start of Ezekiel 18, verse 20, or you can find it at the end of Ezekiel 18, verse 4. But here's the sentence. The sentence is this. The soul who sins shall die. Doesn't say might. This is what the law of God demands. The sinful soul, the sinner's soul, any soul that sins shall die. The law condemns sin. And we go, yeah, okay. The law of God condemns all sin. Right? Yeah, we can nod at that pretty easily. The law of God condemns a sinner who committed even but a single sin. Yes? One sin. Condemnation. In other words, the soul who sins shall die. The law's judgment renders verdict. Sin from a soul made in the image of God must die. In other words, the penalty of the law is for us done away, Paul writes, because that penalty has been paid in our stead by the Lord Jesus Christ. The sinning soul dies, yes. It dies in fulfillment of the law's own demands. So the law demands your death, and Jesus, as your substitute, dies the death the law demands. Yeah? Right? Right. So that means that we are then set free. We are set free from the penalty of death pronounced upon us as sinners by the law of God. Because the demanded penalty of that law has been paid. That's how Paul can say that it is through the law that he died to the law. The law's demand being satisfied in the death of Christ. But if we are tentative about our understanding of our union with Christ, we might vacillate and shudder a little bit at the idea that we can speak to the law of God and say, you have no power over my salvation. 
Because all that you required has been given. I am united to Christ. That means the penalty he paid is in my account. In other words, the law cannot promise life. It can only threaten death, which it does in full measure everywhere. This is why Paul is pushing back on the idea of human merit as a means to salvation. Because Paul makes us believe the law's testimony about itself. The law says that it is there to condemn the soul that sins. And every Christian can say, hallelujah. How many of us spend prayerful hours chin down in fear? In fear that the law of God is still our master. I'm not saying that there isn't proper or good use for the law. There is. I'm saying it's not the road to salvation. It's very helpful, and we will do that in other places at other times. But it is through the law that Paul died to the law because the law has nothing more to say against us after its penalty has been paid. Christian, lift your eyes. Lift your chin and smile. The law is empty of wrath against you. The law of God neither whispers nor shouts your sin before you as a means of salvation. That's why Paul can say that it is through the, the law that he died to the law. But it is not only true that it is through the law that we die to the law. It is also equally and intimately connected to the truth that so that I might live to God. How often are we so focused on the road to salvation that we forget that salvific life is ours in the same way that we are united to Christ and Christ's death sufficiently pays the law's demand of our death, so too are we united to Christ's life. And in that life, we live. It seems so fundamentally obvious at times, intellectually. Its complexity is more often found in the maturing believer's battle with self-talk than with an understanding of what is true. It is our orthopraxy or lack thereof, orthopraxy or lack thereof, that reveals the weak stance we have in our orthodoxy. 
we can say, yes, Christ's death was mine. Christ died as my substitute. Yes, yes, yes. And then live in fear of our failing performances. Live in the gloom and doom of the wrath of God, which has, in all its fiery fury, been quenched. The smoke put out. The thunder crashes to be heard no more. You squeamish yet? You shouldn't be. You mustn't be. The gospel of grace is unto life. We die in our union with Christ's death and we live in our union with Christ's life. This is exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 20. And it's why it's one of our memory verses this year. Because I want you thoroughly equipped for the dark hours. I want you thoroughly equipped when the boo bird song comes to sing at you. I want you ready for whatever gray monsters might rise to nip at your heels or to devour your abdomen. We live. We don't kind of live. We don't approximate life. If you are united to Christ. By saving faith, that saving faith necessitates both elements. That you're dead to the haunting demands of the law and that you are alive with a new master, given a new heart and the power and perfections of an enabling spirit that seeks your best good. Not so that you can find a favor that is missing. For what favor do you not already have? Paul is intimately connecting these two aspects of salvation. Listen for them in verse 20. The first is a forensic, a justice, a judicial. It's the removal of guilt. We call this idea justification. The second is a vital aspect. It's the giving of new life. It's the doctrine of definitive sanctification, which gives birth to progressive sanctification. Hear these two aspects in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see the two? It's not just the removal of guilt with a suspicious eye that it might return. And it is not just the possible newness of life. 
It is not just a clean slate so you can try again. I've known people who thought they were saved week after week after week as separate events. Because they know during the week they fell. They know during the week they failed. I laugh because I'm like, actually, in your prayer for requesting salvation, you already failed again. So do you stop? Yes. You stop embracing a fear that Christ's work is not given to you. If you desire it, it is present. For all others despise what you desire. It's a miracle for you to want the Holy Spirit at work in you. It's a miracle in you for you to say and believe and mean Jesus Christ is Lord unto joy. There are many demons who will shudder. Jesus Christ is Lord unto fearful sorrow. Your repentance and faith lead to joy. No eyes need be suspicious. No question remain. If you have been crucified with Christ, then you are united to Christ and his death your death. Yes, hallelujah. So too his life, your life. And this is where we go, all right, pastor, I like what you're saying. You're kind of beating back a little despair in me. Keep going. And I have to say, I know. I know your secret sins. I know your desperate fears. I know. I know because I have. I know because for years and years I've been invited into them over and over and over again. So too does Paul know but it doesn't really matter what Kevin knows or what Paul knows unless he writes. How much more does God know? If your wife knows, how much more does God know? If your kids know, if your boss knows, if your colleagues know, your classmates know, how much more does God know? I remember the moment in college where somebody had the glorious audacity to say to me, what you really believe in who you are is found when you're alone. I want to punch that guy right in the face for, you know, Christian reasons. Because what he was challenging me to understand is that sort of proverb that gets passed around that Christian character is understood by what you do when no one's looking, not what you do when the people are looking. There's benefit there for sure, but not when it comes to our understanding of salvation. That's why Paul says next, 
this life I live in the flesh. This, this life I live in the body is incongruent at times with everything I'm called to do, to be, to love, and everything I'm called to forsake and withdraw and move away from. There are times where what you see or what you do is not in line with what Paul is saying here. And yet, Paul is including the very worst of that, the very darkest of that, the most misery of all of that sin and sorrow and suffering. He's saying, I don't live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by merit, by effort, by sincere desire, by faith, by faith. Any faith? The concept of faith? No, by the particularly singular object of faith, Jesus Christ. How do you combat sin in your mortal bodies? By faith. Not by effort, by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Do you believe that? Believer, you must believe that. Your offense before God settled by your union with Christ and nothing else. And it's faith in the Son of God. Watch how Paul turns this mighty doctrine to an intimate mercy. It's the son of God. Not just that guy who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, but the one who loved me. He didn't just love us. He did love us. But in salvation, he saved you. Not someone who's like you. Not people who might be like you. Notice the intense intimacy and singular truth that Jesus Christ loved me and therefore he gave himself for me. As you live by faith and not by sight, there's a day coming where faith will be sight. The two will be together and your performance perfected never again to be perverted. Woo! Right? Does that wake you up in the morning? You live by faith. So when your performance is lacking, you need not despair. When your performance is failing, you can still sing. 
about the glories of God. You don't get worthy for Sunday morning. I'm trying, brother. I'm trying. Right? So when you succeed and you kick back and smoke a cigar, we're Presbyterians, we can do that on occasion, and puff to the clouds, you can enjoy the truth that you're not successful because of what you've done in the eyes of God. You don't have favor, more favor, more luck, more whatever benefit you might name that night. Because of your obedience, because you walked the balance beam of the law of God. You didn't even crawl across the balance beam of the law. You haven't seen accurately, fully yet, the balance beam that the law demands of you to walk. You have Christ who walked it for you. So don't rise to the level of your own performance and start congratulating yourself as if you have done something that others have not done. And don't slide off into the cavernous depths of an anxiety and depression that leave you all but hopeless because of what you have done. Pride, repent, despair, repent, grab hold of Christ afresh in your mind. That is the walk of obedience that God would have for you. And when you fail that, confess that. Because you've never performed in your Christian life apart from the safety net of God's grace, apart from the sure foundation of Christ, you walk, you breathe, you live. When he says, the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, he is standing against human effort as the pleasing mechanic of salvation. And how do I know he's standing against human merit? Verse 21 codifies it. Listen to verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't even like whispering those words. Nullify? You could also translate that make void. I do not make void the grace of God, those of us old enough to have written a check, have you ever written it wrong? What do you do to it when you've written it wrong? You void it. And if you're anything like me, you're scratching for a while, and you're writing void, 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 void in different sizes in different places, and then you're shredding it and burning it, scattering the ashes in different places, right? I don't have a lot of money. I got to protect it sometimes. <laughs> Could you imagine writing void on the grace of God? Could you imagine trading his righteousness for yours? But that's what we do in those dark moments. We begin to question the sure footing of the gospel. 
we begin to wonder if God's grace is enough to remove even that much more guilt that I see. Or we wonder if the vitality of the gospel really can give birth in new ways. Or am I just stuck like this until he returns or takes me home? We see this doctrine summed up so beautifully in a hymn called The Rock of Ages. Not the Rock of Ages you know, perhaps, but the one written by Augustus Toplady in the wonderful years of 1775 and 1776. The hymn writer says this. He says, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Those are these two aspects of salvation being highlighted. The forensic and the vital. Take from me my guilt and take from me my power. Take from me my guilt according to the law of God and take from me my wrongful trust in the power of the law of God. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. We live with the life of Christ. And this is not only true in the quality of life that we've been given, it is equally true that it's the source of life that we've been given. In other words, the life of Christ, Jesus Christ, the one of Nazareth, the life of Christ in its quality and its source is the new life of the believer that Paul's talking about here in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. That's why my guilt has been removed. The law's demand satisfied. And not only did I hang on the cross with him, Hallelujah. I also rise with him. How are you united to Christ on the cross on Friday and not resurrected in new life Sunday morning? This is the blessed doctrine of our union with Christ. And we actually see all three forms of this union, three facets of this union in these three verses. We see our historical union with Christ being united with him on his death on the cross. It is right for you to say the words, I have been crucified on a Roman cross. You haven't metaphorically been crucified on a Roman cross. If you have faith in Christ, then you were there. Too far? Not too far. Brothers and sisters, not too far. He hanging on the cross is you hanging on the cross. Meeting all the demands the law requires. And you, rising in the early hours of a Sunday morning, that's true of you too. 
resurrected in the newness of life. Press into these truths. Don't shrink back from them. Let them tell you more about who you are than your own thoughts might lend itself to. You have a union with Christ, and it is a historical union. You have a living union. You have an alpha point of salvation where the Holy Spirit animated you. Calvin called it spirit-worked faith. That's what salvation is. It's the giving and granting of repentant faith to the believer. And it happens in time, in space. And that moment is just as real as you being with, united to Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. So you have an alpha point of living union with Christ. You have a redemptive historical union with Christ. And you have an eternal Union with Christ. You were always to be his. That's why he can say, Jesus loved me and died for me. He didn't just die for the opportunity for me. He saved me. And that salvation purchased was applied even 2,000 years later. That's the glory of this double cure, cleansed from guilt, cleansed from power. Brothers and sisters, do not make void the grace of God. Do not seek to supplement your human merits with a pinch of God's grace. Any bakers in the room? Any culinary artists? How many times do we try and throw our human merits into the pan and then sprinkle in just enough of God's grace so that we can bake a Christian life? I hope that's foul in your thoughts. Do not seek to supplement your human merits with a pinch of God's grace, because I promise you that dough will never rise. Merit and grace cannot be combined. Merit and grace can never be combined. So what's our application What's the theological witness of this text? I'll give it to you in six words. Christ will do everything or nothing. Christ will do everything or he will do nothing. Lift your chin, set your eyes, grab hold of Christ. And live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we lift up our hands to you empty. They are stretched out toward you with nothing to offer.
and everything to receive. Our Father in heaven, sink this deep truth into our minds and hearts and bear the fruit of it in our lives that there is nothing the law can do to improve our standing before you. Instead, O oh Lord, may we cling to Christ and trust him alone for all good things. And all God's people agree. <laughs>